two, one. And we are live. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Wompcast. Today we are dissecting and digesting the world with my good friend, Idol, and my guest today, <laughs> Anson. Hello. You. Yeah. Applause? Question mark? Okay. Applause. I'm gonna. Okay, okay. Okay, now I'm going to go into my um, introduction of Anson, and I am going to document um, our, I don't know, relationship, I guess, and where we uh, met. Actually, we met uh, when I was in grade eight, I think. Summer when I was in grade eight, and you were in grade nine, and we met at a debate tournament. And I was going to go to your high school and we coincidentally met, you asked me for directions and we started talking. And ever since then, I somehow got pulled into everything that you were involved in. And honestly, yeah, you were so present in every facet of my life. And it feels so weird now that you're in none of them anymore. So anyways, so Anson. I'm going to first start off with a Shakespearean Shakespearean recital of her LinkedIn bio. www.ansonu.ca Leaf emoji. I like to spend my time creating narratives through videography, design, and code. Let's talk about agriculture. Oh, agricultural tech urban design or emerging media at Anson. Okay, actually, I didn't say this part. Or whatever, her Gmail. Insert her Gmail. <laughs> and Anson, there, during our interactions with each other, I have, um, you know, summarized over time three things that I admire deeply about her. First, and most importantly, is that I feel that she is one of the very, very rare, true, genuine humanitarians that lives by their convictions. Now, there's a lot of people who who preach their love for humanity and bringing people together, but Anson is probably the only person I've met who lives by that mantra and injects it into every single thing she does. You are a very genuine person, if not the most genuine person I've ever met in my entire life, aside from Camille Paglia and Jordan <laughs> Peterson. And okay. And secondly, your magnetism. There's something about you that commands, as I've described, you're like you're like a iron iron hand in a velvet glove. You have such magnetism. You invite people in. People are just drawn into you. There's so much love and bubbliness and awesomeness. And everyone just wants to be around you at all times. And second, and thirdly, you are the epitome of meticulous hard work. I have a video, actually, of you. A one-minute clip. Uh, there was one time after school where you invited me to, I don't know, sit beside you as you were editing a mini-documentary. And um, I was just, I was sitting there with you for like hours and you were just editing this one, it was like a few minutes, I don't know. And you were, you were working on this one five second clip for like 10 minutes and going back and forth, making sure everything was aligned. And I, that, that a moment was deeply inspiring to me. And I try to imitate that same level of meticulousness in everything I do as well. So. Anson Yu is the best, and uh, and to the point where, hey, I don't I don't say this about people, okay? I don't honestly I don't really care if people talk uh, trash about other people sometimes, but if it's about you, Jordan Peterson or Camille Paglia, I will I will fight them. Actually, if they if what they're saying is not true, then I would fight them. But even I don't know, even if you like punched someone in the past and that actually happened and someone was telling me about it, I don't want to hear it. I don't know. I <laughs> I, I am not going to listen to that stuff. So anyway, so here we have Anson Yu. 
Welcome to the Bombcast. That was the warmest welcome. I don't know if you can hear blushing, but hello, audience members. I am profusely blushing right now. Oh my, oh my goodness, my that's so warm. <laughs> oh my I am blushing now that you're blushing. <laughs> that's my goal. That's my goal for、um, this podcast. Every time I, I invite a guest on, I want to introduce them warmly and make them blush profusely. I've succeeded twice in a row.、Uh, twice in a row. Oh my goodness! And I need to succeed in drinking water. That's a pretty good hit rate.、Um, I was just saying it's a perfect time to be warmer because <laughs> my dad shut off the heat in the entire house because we we're worried about like COVID circulating because we have like downstairs tenants、um, and one of their colleagues got COVID. That's a completely unrelated story and probably not one that we should air. But alas, <laughs> that is the reality. You have warmed my cold ass room, so thank you. I appreciate it. Oh my god, this is my new identity—a thermometer. Wait, <laughs> hold on. Is that A thermostat. I'm a thermostat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say, like, I think the way that we met is so on brand for me because I'm completely directionless.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Which isn't on brand for me because I'm usually the one who's being like shepherded around by my friends. Yeah. So I guess we bring out different parts of each other. I bring、yeah. out the, the commander and the、um, director in you. <laughs> Oh my god, that is so funny! Because if you ask people I work with at Sparkathon, I am known as Commander Kristen. Commander Kristen, Commander、yeah. with a K, so it's like like a like a alliteration type of thing. KK, yeah. Okay, so I want to share with you actually some revelations that I made in the past few days since we last spoke, and I would like your opinion on them. So,、um, if you recall our last conversation, we were talking about movies and how,、um, as you watch a movie and see different narratives play out, they help you comprehend fragmented memories and experiences and pieces of knowledge from your own life. And sometimes you will experience this moment of epiphany or this like Jungian synchronicity, where this. External, where the external world and the internal world coincide, and they become one, and 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 everything just clicks, right? And all these fragmented pieces become one unified picture, and you're like, oh ha,、huh, okay, that's what that was. That's where, okay, that person was an asshole to me. I didn't realize it now, but I do now. So, and, and I had this moment. I had this moment when I was watching. Um, a Serbian film. Have you ever heard of a Serbian film? Wait, is it like a Serbian film, or is the title literally a Serbian film? Yeah, the latter. Oh no, I have not seen that. But that is a funny title. <laughs> okay, good. You probably don't want to watch it if you're not into snuff films, because it's it's very very graphic. But I really like snuff films, not for the graphic. Portion obviously it disgusts me, it horrifies me, but for the psychological horror aspect, I think they reveal to you something about human nature that people like to repress, that people don't like to talk about, and I find it very interesting. It challenges my perspective of reality. So what I realized is there's this question that I've been grappling with for a very very long time, which is. Why does modern man have such a proclivity towards groupthink? And I would, you know, pick up different anecdotal,、uh, personal experiences, and、um, or or things that I read, excerpts of books that I read, or things that I, I've seen through lectures or、um, or or whatever. But. They never created a unified picture or this this narrative of why people、uh, are so attracted to group ideology. Okay, so so here here are some pit some some like bits and pieces I picked up over time. So we talked about how individualism inevitably leads to tyranny and tyranny leading to individualism last time, and. 
that makes sense but i don't know it just never really clicked in my head and we talked about i think i think it was you i forgot but a uh, jungian psychological like jung's idea of psychological balance how oh the unconscious and the conscious mind need to have a balance of psychological opposites you know what is repressed in the conscious mind is expressed through unconscious dreaming da, 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 da. anyways and and this third portion um i read um notes from underground by dostoyevsky and there is this part where it's like shower upon him every blessing da 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 uh and oh i have it right here okay drown him in bliss so that, that oh so that nothing but bubbles would dance on the surface of his bliss and uh, da, da 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 uh but even then every man out of sheer ingratitude sheer libel would play you some loathsome trick he would even risk his cake and would deliberately desire the most fatal rubbish the most uneconomical absurdity simply to introduce into all of this positive rationality his fantastic fatal element simply in order to prove himself that men are still men and not piano keys so these three um i don't know pieces of evidence so to speak I- i've always juggled with you know how like i don't know it just never really clicked in my head until i watched a serbian film and honestly i don't think i should describe a serbian film but neither do i want anyone to watch it um but as i was watching it something just clicked in my head as this one uh character was was uh making this speech about how um like how society is just a kindergarten um how we're all just kids being thrown away by our parents and our whole lives were just compelled to take care of ourselves and prove to the world that you can and he said shit eat fuck um i don't all of these things all by yourself just to prove that you are independent and 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 then he talked about the power of victims and how everybody wants to be a victim. And when he was saying all these things, it clicked in my head. It clicked everything just clicked in my head and I thought to myself, "Huh. The democratic imposition towards freedom and individuality emerges from the fantasy of the oppressed, de-individualized and those who have been tyrannized." And the inverse is true. those who are free are an individual and and have have this bubbling fantasy of precisely the opposite where responsibility is abdicated where they no longer need to bear the burden of the world on their shoulders hmm. There are so many pieces that I wanted to latch onto. Um mm. I think the first thing that I want to address is like when you're talking about the kindergarten and how we're being launched in the society um at what point do you go from child to parent because you do say that we are thrown by our parents into this world where we're supposed to to shit eat and fuck so yeah. <laughs> what is that transition period do you think transition period between because i would ar- also argue that that transition period is also the period where you adopt this responsibility and this burden of the world and where you start to crave that individuality and you carve it out for yourself among the sandbox of your kindergarten right and then from achieving that individuality i hypothesize that you begin to crave the opposite human are fickle <laughs> I was... I guess in- oh sorry oh no go ahead yeah <laughs> i guess it's interesting because we were talking about being a contrarian last time mm. and how you said that imagine just being whatever is like rejected by everyone else right yeah no <laughs> i was voicing my qualms with people um basically pegging their identity on 
being a contrarian because in that instance your identity only exists in negative space it only exists to oppose the ideas that people usually have and i think the pendulum is really fun to watch if you're far enough removed because you get to see counterculture become mainstream and then it happens again and again and again and I guess the question that I have about this is are people so with what you're saying you're saying that people are not pegged to one part of the pendulum and they're not scattered like they're not like evenly distributed throughout but they are prone to swinging to the other end is that <laughs> mm. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you might have to cut this. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, it does seem that way. There's something about individuality can that that can only um, be in opposed to something else. You can only exist if you're if you exist against something else. It's very strange. Um, and this 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 movie called uh, 120 Days of Sodom made me realize this. You see a world where, uh, uh, where in where this uh, totalitarian regime, and these um, people who reach the pinnacle of that society, reach the pinnacle of material success and political power, they have command over everything and everyone around them. Um, but can you say that they're free? Can you say that there's something about achieving true material freedom that and in and true f- there's something about achieving this state of individuality where you transcend social norms and and uh, and customs that almost make you become less individual you almost become bestial Hmm. in many ways okay yeah no i see what you mean there because like if you are climbing a specific ladder you're still tied to the parameters of that ladder so the moment that you like reject it entirely like in the book perfume by patrick suskind you have this i don't know if you've read it or not but like it's one of my all-time it's your it's your it was in your ee wasn't it no but it was oh wait hold on you told me about this before yes uh yes you told me but i I remember go ahead Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so it's just like so absolutely grotesque but incredibly interesting so there's two degrees of separation from the book perfume and actual reality the first degree of separation is that your main character is this like goblin-like creature that spends his entire life on the outskirts of society and he like rejects everything he's like extremely weird and not like in the quirky visco girl sense but like just absolutely odd like he he will go into the dumpster and smell things because he likes it he killed 12 virgins just because he wanted to make perfume out of it he's like very weird and the second degree of separation from our reality is the fact that it's a fictional book so because you kind of have these two leaps in this novel we're allowed to explore themes that we feel almost like weird or guilty exploring in our regular lives. And that's why I think fiction is so powerful, but that's like a whole other thing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, like (laughs) Granui, which is the name of the the main character, he's very much like the truest sense of the word. He is a contrarian because he exists in negative space to, um, I guess like the rest of French society. And it's not a pleasant life for him because he spends the entire book running away from any semblance of warmth and community and (laughs) um sure he has like true freedom but he also is characterized as a beast so in this regard i think like i would much rather be (laughs) i I don't know if i would want to be free if this is what freedom means the more free you are the less of an individual you become I would say the more free you are, the less human you become. I don't know. Maybe I don't 
quite grasp like the concept of what it means to be like an individual but i think when it comes to humanity i think that's definitely the case because to an extent being a human and maybe like a good citizen is like accepting some communal responsibility like to care for the people around you and also to care about your environment um and if you want true like absolute freedom that is the plain rejection of all of these things all of the norms traditions like holidays <laughs> i don't know why i threw that in there but like holidays um connections like just and the warmth that comes with humanity so i think one of the things that our generation specifically gets wrong because we're so focused on pursuing our individual paths is like the strength of community and the strength of like human connection beyond like superficial like follows and likes and clicks and stuff like that sorry i need like, to stop apologizing for the things that i say also <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of editing for you in this one i'm so sorry <laughs> no i literally don't edit anymore <laughs> it's so it's more authentic this way and i i like authenticity yeah there's something about authenticity that makes it more profound I guess why I asked that, I wanted to see your take on it because um, in my favorite book, Sexual Personae, uh, Camille Paglia says that when we run from the cold embrace of the state, we, we find ourselves in the more, the grip of mother nature, uh, which is to her more, even more, inhumane and uh, de-individualizing than the state. Hmm. Can you expand a bit more on what do you mean by the state? Um, I guess the state is just o this overarching category of like society, um, social norms and customs, laws, regulations, expectations imposed on you by other people. When we reject all of that, what we find is that we're not free. We just escaped one value structure just to find ourselves within another. And that is, um, and this new structure is just based on the whims of our natural impulses. And maybe the real forces of nature. I don't know. If you literally run from society to start a commune, I don't know. You're going to like suffer from lightning storms. I don't, who knows? I don't know. why. This is completely tangential. But like this reminded me of the conversation that I had with my friend about taking psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where he was talking about like how um, it helped him enter into like a very meditative state. And it was entirely dependent on his mood beforehand, but like before taking psychedelics. <laughs> um, and then... Um, if your mood is good going into it, it's actually a serene, controlled state of being. I've never taken psychedelics, so I really cannot speak for it. But just, I thought that was pretty interesting because now I'm watching the pendulum swing for, in terms of public opinion, towards like substance abuse, or I guess substance use, not substance abuse. No. Uh, <laughs> and I would say like 70s, like very much. I would say like almost a mainstream part of culture and then you have like the Reagan administration doing like the war on drugs and really criminalizing it and I feel like it's almost swinging best it's kind of like the pendulum concept that you're talking about earlier how we like to exist in negative space of like mainstream ideas because because I think another reason why we are so prone to like running to the other side of the ideological spectrum is because when we are in the midst of a certain ideology, we see all the nitty gritty parts. We see the good parts and we also see the deep problems that come with it. So um, when we look to the other end of the spectrum or like different ideas, it's almost idealistic because we don't see the problems that 
exist when we are entrenched in that ideology. So I think that's why the pendulum swing happens because humans are naturally like, we have very active imaginations and we like to aspire to different things, I would say. <laughs> I guess the difference between Canadian politics and American politics is just, is the sense of like religiosity when it comes to looking at politics. There's a sense of uh, values being embedded into your political affiliations that we don't have in Canada um, that exists in America. So it, it's very easy for people to look at politics from a more rational perspective and case by case, policy by policy perspective that is not necessarily um, uh, possible in America in certain ways. So that's one distinction. I think in Canada, we focus more on developing the individual, bettering ourselves. I, that's what I see the attitude towards being. I subscribe to that attitude as well. I don't think that um, societal change is most meaningfully addressed on the societal level. Most things should be addressed on the individual level. That to me is a most meaningful change. I kind of want to jump on that topic a little bit. On the individual level, what is the best way to enact like self-growth in that way? Because I think we talked about it during our conversation earlier, but I personally find that it is best if you want to improve yourself to entrench yourself in surrounding communities that are focused on like personal growth in this way to help other Oh my God. Oops. Whoa, what just happened there? <laughs> I don't <laughs> Whoa, what just happened? I don't have okay. Yeah, I don't know if it's me or if it's I think it's me. Hold on, give me a moment. Let me okay. just ask my mom what the hell is happening with the internet. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, that was trippy. Okay. Uh well we're, we're still recording. I need I just need to cut this out. You wanna like rephrase what your question? Yeah, so I kind of want to jump on that a little bit because I think when it comes to personal development and inducing that per personal growth, it happens so differently for a lot of people. Um, and I know you're a pretty big proponent of bringing about it in a way that is rooted in like self-reflection and <laughs> whenever i see like the red dot <laughs> i'm like oh my god i have forgotten how to speak anyways <laughs> oh you mean the record thing yes the record don't dot. look at it i cannot look at it i gotta mm -hmm. gotta hide it away i'm gonna put a sticky note <laughs> oh dude that is that why you were looking the opposite direction the whole time yes this is performance anxiety <laughs> 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 Honestly, Sam, I get super nervous during these things and I say like an um more than actual words. Mm -hmm. you, you'll get used to it after a while. I'm, I'm starting to get used to it, I think. Okay, that's good. Uh... <laughs> oh, shoot, my sticky note fell. That's a sign for me to get on with it and to get over it. <laughs> um, yeah. So yes, I am curious about your approach to personal development. Uh, something that we talked about during the call prior was the idea of these things called gentos, which were mutual improvement clubs founded by Benjamin Franklin and his friends, where people got together and they talked about philosophy, the sciences, arts. And I just thought that that concept was super cool because it's kind of like personal development through a group environment. Um, and I think that's how self-help originally started out as a means to improve the general standing of your community. But then since then, self-help has like pretty rapidly transformed into a very individual approach uh, where you're supposed to reflect inwards and examine like the locus of control for how you make decisions in your life. So can you speak to that a bit? Like how do you personally, how did you personally go through that rapid time of like personal development? Cause I know you went through that 
pretty recently in like the last two years <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyone knows me and can reaffirm that very well uh, so when you spoke to that thing about community i don't think for me it was necessarily a completely individual process with social media with literature you can very easily create a pseudo a community that's internal rather than external because ultimately to me um, the function of a community is to create this social hierarchy where it defines um, like uh, certain correct pathways for existence and you use that socially constructed um, metric to help guide your own life right um, and you can do that through a physical community or you can do that the way that I did, which is through reading great works of literature, seeing, um, you know, the hero story being um, manifested in multiple instantiations across all these great works of fiction. And conversely, the vill story of the villain, the story of the fool, what, what those stories are like. And... And watching lectures on self-development by Jordan Peterson and doing that personal reflection, just comparing notes. What, you know, what is Jordan Peterson saying about the proper mode of being? And what am I doing in my personal life? How does that compare to, and how, how it, you know? So it's, it's strangely not an individual process. Because I don't think you could just spontaneous cre spontaneously create, um, you know, this idea of good and bad ways to exist in the world. Hmm. You need something to compare it to. Too. That can be through other people or through what I did. <laughs> I'm curious about the feedback loop with that because. Obviously, like the book can't give you <laughs> um, like immediate feedback on like how you have personally developed and you you don't get to see that response real time. So how did that? Anson, I have friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have friends. It's just um, most of my revelations were kind of individually um, constructed, maybe but facilitated through this pseudo internal community um, that I built through literature and my personal readings and etc. But I would I would test it out in real society among my peers and my friends and and other people. So it's not like it's not like I just ran off into a cave somewhere and came out a better person. <laughs> no, now I'm just thinking of Grenouille, like the main character from Perfume, because that's literally what he did. <laughs> he, he ran into a cave and he hid for like 10 years, <laughs> mastered his craft, and then he came back like a, a, a master perfumist. Honestly, like this entire uh, podcast is going to be like a perfume stan <laughs> podcast. So like everybody go read Perfume if you haven't. <laughs> but yeah, um, in what ways do you think that you personally developed throughout like the last two years? Because it's been pretty drastic, I think. Like, you've become a lot more confident and like self-assured in your abilities, and just you've always had like a I don't give a fuck attitude. But now it's like, I would say that it's amplified a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that term amplified is a great word to use. There's this revelation that I made about personal growth that I talked about in my last podcast, Shannon, which is that um, I don't think necessarily that I've become a different person and I would talk to my childhood friends about this subject who've known me since we were like four years old and they say the same thing they say I don't feel like you became a different person but I realized I just became more me as external pressures and strings that uh, were puppeting me whether they're controlled by you know external forces some like uh insecurities personal like like ghosts that 
uh, haunted me from the past or whatever, uh, like faded away, and I just became more me and my traits that already were latent within me became more pronounced. So I think my growth, in some strange sense, was very cyclical. Where I think it began in grade eight, where I made the decision to <laughs> change my name to Kristen, and that was a very important step, I think, because I think people need some sort of ritual process by which they can cement this idea that and cement this. What would you say, like this signpost in in their in in the journey of their life to say this is where this part of the road ends. This is where I'm going to leave my past self behind and develop into the new me. And that changing of my name was that signpost for me, so I can move on and, and w- without any strings attached. Actually, that I don't think that's a right word to use. Um, without any. Thing holding me back, I can explore like everything and anything, and and, and develop myself in, in ways that the past self couldn't because of all these, um, you know, internal constraints. Uh, so that shedding allowed me to develop exponentially. And now I, I come out the other side with all these skills and all these experiences that I built up. After all this period of soul searching, of this this obsession with indivi- individuality and this yearning to create a perfect me, this the pendulum swan, swang, swan, oh, sw- oh my god, the pendulum swang to the other direction, and I wanted to just be who I always was because I realized that is just that is who I am and I can never run away from it so now I'm going through this period where I've been working on accepting who I am and who I've always been I don't know I I think I still need to do some contemplation on it it's it's not fully articulated but I think that is what I can do for now that is growth is a weird thing yeah no you're right (laughs) it kind of reminds me of what people say about retiring um so we spend the rest or so much of our lives trying to get the monitor monetary resources and just like mentals and like social stability so we can go back to doing the things that we did once as kids so like as a senior you want to like retire you want to play you want to pursue your hobbies and it's all, it is very cyclical. Um, we're just trying to get back to that childlike whimsicality where we didn't care about as much. <laughs> and it's just our entire adult life is just like a Sisyphus. Oh my God, I cannot pronounce it. Can you pronounce it? Sisyphus. 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 This like perpetual pursuit of freedom to pursue what we want and then once we have it it turns out it was it was something that we we already had as children yeah but like as we're growing into our teens and like becoming quote-unquote adults we're shedding the things that once made us young and excited and just like infatuated with life and that makes me really sad so I don't know. I guess it's something that I'm personally trying to do, just being very intentional with allowing myself the freedom to play, even as I'm like forming into an adult person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, why wait 40 years until you're older and you have time? Like, why, why not now when you're in like the prime of your youth and your body is like still able to, if you're like lucky enough for your body to still be able to like, climb monkey bars and run around in fields and like toss the ultimate disc um yeah hmm. would you say that that complete transition into let's say that different 
that adult mentality and just completely submerging yourself in it perhaps is necessary because what if what if this is just the type of creatures we need to be because if we always stay in the middle ground that will lead to stagnation Mm. what if I don't know what if it's just boring that way if we're constantly in between childhood and adulthood you think this is like somewhat of the same reason why we're prone to falling into almost like tribalistic identities in politics as well like we we just want to have an identity that we can cling to whether it be i am an adult or i am a kid or i am a senior or i am a democrat i am a republican i am in in the middle i'm a mediator we tend to really like (laughs) there's comfort in labels i think some people would argue that like you would you strip the power away from ideas once you put a label on it but i don't know how true that is i think you actually empower them more by allowing people to find identification in your labels and also it enables you to share ideas that are attached to to specific labels Yeah, I don't think it's true either because uh, it reminds me of this quote by Jung, which is like, um, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And Mm. it is precisely because they are this identifying label that we can uh, like give to uh, ourselves and other people. That's what gives these ideas power. There is this eternal quest for identity that is this mythological motif stretching all throughout uh, the entire course of human history whereas before we found identity in maybe our heritage or our um, religious affiliations now that we've shed those two things we've we we put the onus onto ourselves to define our own identity and i think politics have has emerged as a pseudo identity for people to cling on to Mm -hmm. yeah it almost has all the components of a religion you have a charismatic leader typically (laughs) um Mm -hmm. that people are disciples to you have i guess an opposition i would say the majority of religions have this conflict between good and evil and the incarnations of oh excuse me and you also have like mass to a certain extent uh whether whether it be like digital mass or like quite literally congregating in giant stadiums and cheering on your political figurehead um yeah no i think politics very well the our modern religion actually i think i'd challenge that because the one distinction i would say is politics puts the puts uh, us in humanity as the center of the universe but and, and there's this, this sense of egotism that c- comes with it but it doesn't give us a sense of me- metaphysical reality of spirituality of the grandiose the grandiosity of nature and our small place within it and there's some psychological element that i find in of that in religion which is so profound and um i would argue that oh wait sorry am i cutting you off no no i'm gonna stop my thought there Mm. i would argue that beyond like metaphysical examination and expanding the worldview beyond the scope of humans um i would say the most important thing within a religion is faith and i think the faith that a lot of people have in political institutions to carry out policies and to bring better lives i think that is it resembles religion very closely (laughs) i agree with you on the faith thing um 
but wait, you think politics does have that element of faith? Mm -hmm. It's the only way it can work because people need to believe that the system is able to enact these changes. Right. I mean, David Hume, you cannot derive an ought from an is, but I think I think that's true to a certain degree, but it's not as it's less stable than religion, I would say. Um, I see this in in Donald Trump and with Andrew Yang. Okay, they both construct this this narrative, and then it almost resembles a religious story, you know, with um, with you know the conflict of good and evil, and you know the the importance of the, the disciples to rise up and conquer the forces of evil together with me with le me leading you know whether whether it is humanity uh, first or America first mm -hmm. and and I think that's what this this religious narrative draws people in and I think that is why Donald Trump was so popular because perhaps people felt that it was something that's derived from modern life and why Andrew Yang is gaining steam. I think that's actually that's why I was drawn to the Andrew Yang, I think. Because of his humanity first narrative. I think the camaraderie you find in politics also resembles religious congregations. Granted I am agnostic. Um I went to church for like the beginning half of my life and then did not after that so my my knowledge of religion is very limited <laughs> so it's just speaking from an outsider's perspective i think the religious fervor of politics and how it can i wouldn't say like close your worldview but it can narrow it to spit to fit a very specific set of principles, whether it be that set out in religious texts or informally in pretty Instagram infographics. It's, <laughs> oh my goodness, I just compared the Bible to pretty <laughs> Instagram infographics. Oh no. oh no, heresy, heresy. <laughs> Sacrilege, oh dear lord. Um, or not dear lord, okay. <laughs> um, do not say the Lord's name in vain. Or in aorta. Aorta, like like the uh, like the artery vein. Yeah. Of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> the <cellular. laughs> oh, I took biology. This <laughs> I, I'm finished with biology. Anyways. Way to flex. Yeah, I don't have to do biology ever again in my life. Would you? Just like sheer will for fun? In university? Unless for some reason I want to go into um, psychology again. But that would be unlikely. I think I've become too realistic. Mm. Mm. Do you feel that this is part of your entrenchment into that adult persona that we, <laughs> we outlined previously? That you're like shedding <laughs> your childhood <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I think when you become older, you become more afraid of the consequences of your failures. I think before with um, being a psychology professor, it's something that I was deeply passionate about. I loved teaching. I loved sharing. I loved learning about the human mind, but um, actually, but after I I realize what my life goals are, which is starting a family, I realize it's just not practical. And additionally, I don't want to make my obligation um, something that was initially a hobby. I think that just eliminates a passion that I once had. Mm, definitely. I never mind. me what the hell why is my internet like this hello hello 
Hello? I can hear you. Wait, it's still super slow. What is going on? I can hear you fine. Yeah? Wait, you're not moving though. Okay, you're moving now. Okay, thank God. Hold on, just give me a moment. Let me check my Wi-Fi settings. Maybe I'm on low data mode. and I don't know. Okay, sorry. Where were we? Oh, um, I was reminded of an education bill in Obama's time called like the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, and it was, I think it was following up the No Child Left Behind Act. And originally, the No Child Left Behind Act was uh, basically rejected because of a lack of bipartisan support. But for the next one, uh, for Obama's one, uh, the reamendment of it, they moved so quietly that like people didn't have, <laughs> like there wasn't enough publicity on the bill for people to have like mainstream dissent. So it was actually able to be passed. And I think that's kind of interesting, like using stealth as a way, like almost like averting uh, controversial and like big policies from the public eye to garner more bipartisan support because I would argue that the majority of uh, polarization comes when you remove it from the locus of the Senate and from like the actual health house where politics occur. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess this goes back to the conversation about how Americans inject morality into their political discussions. Is my dog loud? Yeah. <laughs> I'll move. <laughs> Your dog, your your dog is angry. Always angry. Mm. Okay, is is this quieter? Yes. Okay, cool. We are gonna <laughs> go on. Okay. Um. Yeah, I mean, when we discuss politics in Canada, it's not polarized at all. It's if you present facts that change my mind, and they change my mind. But I'm not gonna hold on to a belief because. Um, of because of morality or anything. Um, honestly, I'm not. I, I've been out of the political scene for a long time. I haven't thought about it. I just completely wiped it out of my head. <laughs> everything, everything that I've done in debate. It, it's funny because you know we we both used to be debaters, very very active debaters. Now for me, I <laughs> I, I don't remember much from my. Uh, debate career yeah and i'm doing software development now so which is like <laughs> pretty opposite to um i guess like the international relations spiel that we did um all throughout high school um i'm yeah. curious as to i think like the moral injection is directly correlated with seeing politics as the modern religion so what are some replacements that you can think of for politics in this way because i'm trying to think now and i i cannot think of anything i think it's really interesting i i think we need to reconsider spirituality we need to reconsider orthodox religions mm. perhaps that's one way that we can separate politics and um a contemplation of morality another another is i heard this from camille Polly. i thought i think it's very interesting uh she says that the british commonwealth we have the queen right and she projects this image of uh, moral authority of competence of righteousness of um you know a fair of fairness and judgment or whatever and perhaps that is where these where our, our moral uh you know figurehead lies whereas in american politics that moral figurehead and that that political symbol like merge in the uh in in their politicians i don't know though i don't know to what extent that is true but i thought that was an interesting idea when i heard it hmm. Everybody needs a queen. <laughs> Wait, no, that's <laughs> colonization. 
<laughs> oh, the British Empire rules again. The sun will never set on it. Yeah, I mean, maybe to some extent, um, that's an argument for monarchy. Hmm. Not this monarchy, though, <laughs> with Prince Harry and and um, Meghan Markle eating out like that. <laughs> I have no, I have no idea what's happening with them. I, I just know. I just know that Queen Diana was assassinated, and that is a fact. An unfortunate reality. Wait, was she assassinated? It's definitely a setup. I mean, how could she she die from a car crash? They have the best chauffeurs in the world. Okay, and there was no other cars on the road. They went into this tunnel, and suddenly something happened. Oh, conspiracy time. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, because I was talking about this with my mom, and apparently she lived a very promiscuous lifestyle, okay? She was breeding with, with, you know, her hair hair stylist, her her stylist, um, everybody. And uh, she was engaging in a very, um, let's say, undignified lifestyle. So she was tarnishing the image of the royal family, and that, that's why my mom said that she was assassinated, but who knows? I think your mom is automatically defensive of Princess Diana because her name is also Diana. <laughs> Perhaps there's a cosmic connection there that we can't understand. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Hmm. Wait, actually, no. She was like, she was like ripping Diana to pieces with her evaluation of her. I'm just kidding. She did not like her. She she was like, I can be the only one. Okay. (laughs) What is your, like, what runs through your head when you see somebody with the same name as you in a room? Because when I see somebody else with the same name in a room, I I get competitive because my name is so rare that I'm like, there can only be one. I don't know what it feels like to have someone else that is also named Anson existing in the same space as (laughs) me. Okay, also, okay, I always joke with Anson that her name is grammatically incorrect because it should be <laughs> Anson, not Anson. But anyways, um, have you ever met someone named Asun? No, but the funny story behind my name is, okay, let, let's backtrack a little bit to my sibling orientation. So Bonnie, the lovely lady that came in and brought in fruit for me, she's my older sister. Um, and I think in the majority of Asian households, there is the common sentiment that you do want a son at some point. So after their first daughter, they're like, you know what? It'd be great if we had a son. So they had me. I am not a son, um, but my name is very close to that. My Chinese name is also a male name. So I'm like, <laughs> for like the first 13 years of my life, I always joked at my parents. I'm like, okay, so I know you wanted me to be a boy, <laughs> but like, um yes and also like my name is just straight up a joke um so my name anson is based off of the chinese phrase um which is like peaceful birth but out of all of my siblings my birth took the longest it took 12 (laughs) hours like excruciating hours (laughs) so like from the very get-go my parents clowned me by giving me a a uh, meme name so Yes, that is the origin of, that's the etymology of uh, my existence. <laughs> hmm. Do you have any reason that you're named the way that you are? Oh, oh my goodness, it's a whole story. Uh, well, I could talk about my birth name, Isabel. And Isabel. okay, okay. Yeah, uh, which is the one I'm going back to now, but everyone knows me as Kristen, my family and family friends knows me as Isabel. So I'm stuck in this identity limbo where I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> what do I respond to? Anyways, so um, my mom was someone who is always also obsessed with individuality and she wanted to give me a very unique name. In fact, when I was still in the womb, the doctors thought I was going to be a boy. So she wanted to name me Benjamin because she wanted me to be like uh, Benjamin Franklin. And uh, when she found out I was a girl, which was when she birthed me, I popped out. I did not have anything down there. And she was like, oh, okay, there should have been something, but I guess this is what we're stuck with. And... um, 
she didn't have a name for me. Uh, so she was thinking, oh, what should I name this kid? Suddenly, there was th- there's this like phantasmagoric voice, you know, calling out outside of the window of her hospital room, saying, "Isabel, Isabel." <laughs> oh, that's very beautiful. But how do how do I spell it? I mean, my mom like recently immigrated prior to uh, my birth. So, I mean, she didn't know what broccoli was. So, like, she didn't know anything. And that's your metric for knowledge. Just yeah. the concept of broccoli. Okay. Yeah, that's that measure yeah. fluentness in language. And and then uh, afterwards, she was walking down this hallway. There was a bunch of paper mache sticked onto the walls with baby names. There was like thousands and thousands in this huge hallway. And out of all of these names, she saw one particular paper mache hand that said Isabel and she's like ah that's how you spell so that was a moment of synchronicity wow amazing so she named me Isabel and she found out Isabel meant promise of the god Hmm. I think (laughs) what was the promise I don't know no matter what um it's going to happen, whatever it is. Mm. I think that mirrors the story of my life quite well. I, I, I'm, I'm a wanderer. I go to all of these places just to find myself back to where I belong, which is where I originate from. A paper mache hand on the wall. <laughs> on the yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Vancouver Women's Hospital. <laughs> That's where I'm meant to be. <laughs> Maybe I should go become a doctor. <laughs> Hey, that means more biology courses. Are you ready? Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny, though. Have you gone back and visited to see if it's actually there? No, they've... That that paper mache hand is probably like 17 years old. They've probably taken it down. It's probably rotted. Yeah, I think it's so funny that you can kind of tell what period of your life someone was interacting with you during um based off of like which name they know and i think for me like i don't change my name but it's like whatever books that i recommended to them so it was like is this my magical realism phase or was this my like historical fiction phase and just like seeing the types of interests that i had based off of what i told them to like what books i told them to buy i think it's pretty interesting Mm. what are those different stages of you characterized by so what is what what are the different um, transitions? What what are those? <laughs> I think the first one is pretty distinct. It was reading out of necessity. So every book that I would have possibly recommended to you during this time period were things that were forced upon me either by the school curriculum or by like mandatory readings by some like organization. That, that is like one very distinct period in my life. Then I think I got really into reading books about end of life um, and like a little bit, a little bit about death, but like mostly end of life. And- uh, I remember that. Yeah. Like you remember you were during that period of my life. I, I was very close to you um, because you, I recommended probably like death of Ivan Illich to you. Um, maybe an Atul Gawand book because he was um, talking about like our treatment of elders at the end of life as well Um, and then slowly that transitioned into my like I guess like urban development phase because I'm like okay how can we better house elderly people because I think it's kind of incredible that like we don't see ageism with the same seriousness as we see like racism and sexism I think that's kind of scary as well like with the the okay boomer thing that was happening everybody was like totally okay with like shitting on old people and I'm like wait you know that's gonna be us one day right (laughs) um yeah so in terms of like care for the elderly I think that's like super important so I I dove deep into that from like the end of life bit um and then got really into like economic development for some reason oh and that got really into fiction because i was like too much reality want to be able to explore something um without the rules of this planet so like kafka on the shore and that (laughs) that period um pretty sure 
pretty sure Murakami was on psychedelics for that. <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then now reading a lot about climate change, which is cool. So nothing too drastic, but it's definitely fun to see different periods. <laughs> huh. I've always had one interest in books, which is dark, macabre, <laughs> you know, things... The, the dark side of human nature that's always been what fascinates me interesting even as a kid i was into that stuff but more so on the fantastical side like i i really like mythology and learning about dragons i love the dragons and you know giants and wyverns and anything that was a flying lizard that that spat something that killed people i feel like greek mythology or norse mythology they're things that are so present in your life as a kid it's like one of those things like quicksand or like (laughs) uh, that you expect to be very present in your adult life as well but they aren't um i feel like every kid definitely had like like a mythology phase i don't know why that was the case maybe the construction of our elementary libraries but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i why are you drawn to this dark side, I guess. Is it something that was like intentional or is just it happened? Oh my God, you've been asking so many questions. <laughs> but I think that I've always been um, an introspective kid. I really liked just even as uh, my, my earliest memories stretching into uh, elementary school was just me sitting on, uh, you know, a swing set away from all the kids, just watching them, watching them, observing. Mm-hmm. And I really liked creating, all, like extracting all these character motifs, the hero, the villain, the fool, how their narrative plays out. So I've always just been fascinated with uh, human nature and how, uh, and different uh, archetypical um, pathways of human life. But the the dark side of human nature just always been a particular fascination of mine. I don't. That's a good question. I don't think I've done enough contemplation on why but but i can tell you how i respond to it which is for some reason when i watch psychological horror films or read psychological horror uh literature for most people it would give them a sense of dread because it reveals to them about something that they didn't know they were capable of and it just completely disrupts their conceptual scheme of Uh, reality but for me the more I learn about the evils of humanity the more hopeful I become of the capacity of humanity for goodness because I believe deeply that we are good in so far that we are evil Mm. 